The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. A listener's note. Please be aware this episode includes graphic descriptions of traumatic events such as sexual abuse and violence. Please practice self-care before listening. Everything that I worked hard to think that I would have when I was older, that's gone. You know, I don't know what my future is. On top of all the trauma that we already have, now we're rejected again by a whole country that we call home. This is Unerased, The Deportation of Adoptees in America, a podcast co-produced by Focus Features and Treefort Media in support of the film Blue Bayou. I'm your host, Dino Ray Ramos, founder and editor of Diaspora. In this five-part series, we're hearing real stories from men and women who were internationally adopted by Americans and spent their entire lives completely unaware that they were not American citizens themselves until they were sent away. This is a heartbreaking reality that affects more than 35,000 adult adoptees in the United States. And yet, the majority of Americans have no idea this crisis is happening for so many. Their stories deserve to be heard. This is Anissa Druzito's story, in her own words. I was born in Jamaica in um, November 15, 1970. My mom was a Jamaican woman, and my father is a Canadian, Canadian gentleman. My biological mother um, had her own demons and uh, a lot of abuse, uh, like alcohol, drugs. Um, So, you know, she had me, um, left me with my grandmother. Uh, She married an American guy and had, had another child, another daughter. When my grandmother died, she picked us both up and brought us to Panama. This is where we were when she fell in love with a soldier and abandoned us to go to the U.S. with the soldier. She left us with my grandfather's lover that had three sons by him, and uh, they were sexually molesting my sister and I. So once I told my grandfather, your sons are sexually abusing me and, you know, my younger sister, he put us into an orphanage. At the orphanage, church members and American military families would often visit. 
we had a black family interested in adopting us. And my grandfather thought we would be a better fit with a white family because black people think we're white, white people think we're black, so we're stuck in that little nasty limbo. So then one day I came home from school and my sister was gone out for a weekend with the family. And it was with a white family. And so they found out that she had a sister and they decided that they wanted to adopt her and that they didn't want to separate the sisters. I didn't even know my birthday before I was adopted. I think I was adopted around 9-10. Anissa and her sister were brought to Fort Clayton, the U.S. Army base in Panama where their adoptive family lived. She was now one of seven children, four biological and three adopted. I thought my life was, you know, smooth sailing after this. I had parents. I had a house with electricity and water and food. It was the best thing ever. We would ride our bikes to the pool. Never thought I would own a bike. You know, my sisters, it was fun hanging out with them and everything. And my dad uh, re-enlisted. He was in the U.S. military, he was a sergeant. And um, he re-enlisted and he got orders to go to Seneca Army Depot in Romulus, New York. And um, I was excited that we were going to go, you know, to the U.S. because here in Panama in the 80s, you just saw, you know, Americans in cars and they smelled good. And I just wanted to be a part of that culture. So I was happy. Anissa and her family relocated to the United States, stopping first at the military bases in the Carolinas before going to Indiana to visit her parents' family. That was like awesome meeting the cows and, you know, riding in the tractor and everything like that. I was like, I am set, you know, this is going to be great. I can handle this. So my dad got sent to Romulus, New York. Uh, he reported uh, we got a house and we were just living normal, doing normal teenage, you know, stupid things, liking boys putting up Kurt Cameron things in my locker and, you know, stuff like that. But for Anissa, like so many other adoptees, it can be difficult to adjust. Unfortunately, we don't come perfect. We come with a lot of baggage. Uh, I remember I spent so much time hungry that when I had food, I would hoard it. And you try to be so American that you do everything that your siblings are doing. <laughs> A lot of it is fun. Falling in love with Prince was fun. Learning Michael Jackson moonwalk was fun. <laughs> you know, babysitting was fun. But underneath that, we come with sexual abuse. We come with neglect. We come with all sorts of stuff. Biological children do that too. But an adoptee struggles with stuff every day, wondering where they belong, who they look like. You know, my family all have, you know, light colored eyes, blonde hair. I always straighten my hair until recently because I wanted to fit in. I wanted to be, I wanted to be. I wanted to be part of them. 
I didn't like the dark areas on my body because I wanted to be white like them. And it's just, it's just so much, you know, psychological mind screw. Things became even more challenging for Anissa at age 13 when an injury led to a discovery that would change her entire life. One day I was playing soccer in gym and a classmate of mine kicked the ball and I was the goalie and I jumped up, I caught the ball, I came down and my left leg gave out. And I stood up and it just, it wasn't as strong. So it started to swell and my calf and my left leg started to swell. And um, we only had like a little clinic in the Seneca Army Depot because it's a small military um, army base. And so they took me there as an adoptee, you don't know your medical history. So you're just kind of like stab, you know, punching in the dark. I went in for an x-ray and the radiologist at the clinic basically um, sounded the alarm and said something is very wrong here. Anissa was sent to Geneva General Hospital in Rochester, where a biopsy was done and discovered cancer in her leg. She then spent the next several months at Walter Reed undergoing tests and treatment. My cancer acquired a name, synovial cell sarcoma. It's a cancer in the connective, connective tissues, which at that time they had never seen it in a teenager. My dad, and I were in Walter Reed. Uh, my mom came down um, for them to tell us, you know, that these were my options. My leg was either going to have to be amputated or I was going to have drastic surgery that was going to leave my leg before. Those are my two options. I, being the person that I am, prepared myself for the worst because um, after they opened me up and touched the tumor, it just started growing like wildfire. And uh, it was like, pulling the rest of my skin like pantyhose. It was like almost cracking my skin open. So my mom, dad, and I went into a room. They, the surgeon there told us they were gonna have to amputate. That was the first time I saw my dad cry and um, I knew something was wrong. But after being beat uh, for telling people that I was sexually abused, for telling my grandfather I was sexually abused, and everything that had happened to me before, I was like, okay, I can still, this is still okay. I still have parents. I'm in a hospital, you know, I'm being cared for. Okay, that's fine. It's one leg, I have another one. You know, this is me in my mind trying to make sense of it. I didn't want to tell people how horrible I felt and everything else in my mind because I did that with one psychiatrist and she told my mom and I got in trouble for it. So I just learned to keep that stuff quiet. Anissa's leg was amputated and she underwent chemotherapy in San Antonio before finishing her treatment and returning to New York to graduate from high school. I started feeling pressure from my mom. Uh, you have to find somebody, you have to find a man that's going to uh, pay for your leg because you're going to be off your father's insurance and all sorts of stuff like that. So I had those things, you know, floating around in my mind. I met a guy at uh, the NCO club on base and um, we hit it off and he wanted to meet my parents he met my parents and my mom was pressuring me you know he's a good guy um he wants to marry you he wants to take care of you i ended up marrying him 
The relationship was very volatile because I was a very angry person for everything that I had, you know, bottled up inside of me. We go to Puerto Rico, he becomes physically violent with me. I talk to my friends in New York, I get a ticket. I go back from Puerto Rico to the States and then he calls crying. And so I said, okay, come back. Soon after Anissa became pregnant, amidst all the struggles she continued to face in her life, Anissa was worried that she wasn't ready to be a mother. But when her daughter Vanessa was born in October 1992, Anissa knew she would do anything for her. Anissa had to get herself and her daughter out of the abusive relationship she was in. She was three months old or less when he pushed me down a flight of steps. I woke up in the ER and uh, my daughter was in a carrier next to the gurney that I was laying in. I remember falling backwards and I remember the feeling of nothingness underneath me, but I don't remember anything else. So he called 911, told them that I had fallen because of my prosthetic leg, or I don't know what lie he made up, but the cops were like, so he said that you lost your balance and fell, and I was like, no, he pushed me. I got an order of restraint. I was in a shelter, a domestic violence shelter, for like four days, Vanessa and I, and then I started my journey as a single mother, always juggling jobs, babysitting at night when I wasn't working for people that were working night shift, just doing anything that I could to make ends meet. Through it all, Anissa always made time for her daughter. My mom is very giving and very um, outspoken. I feel like I definitely got that from her. As a mother, always extremely supportive in anything I wanted to do. Um always just always been my best friend like even when I was younger I loved hanging out with my mom honestly my mom has been like my best friend for my whole life in 2004 Anissa was working at a factory making good money but still struggling to make ends meet as a single mother in upstate New York you know your electric bill is two two hundred and twenty three dollars you know your heating and electricity and um, insurance, car payment, you know, buying clothes, all of the expenses that go along with being a parent, it was just too much. And I felt very guilty uh, about it. I felt like I was failing her. Wanting to provide more for her daughter, Anissa took on a seasonal job at a retail store. A friend of mine um, that I went to high school with, like one of those friends that you know, you did everything with. You went to the bonfire and got, you know, deathly sick on Mad Dog 2020. Uh, that kind of friend. Um, she came in and she said, I have some stuff that I got from the store, but I don't have the receipt, but I bought it on this credit card. Can you hook me up? And I said, honestly, I didn't care. Why? Because it was a seasonal job. I was exhausted. And, you know, it wasn't something that I gave two thoughts I said, if it's on the credit card, then fine, you know, bring it in. So once you say yes once to doing something bad, you can't say no. So she kept doing it. Season was up, I went home, right? I'm still working my full-time job. My car is semi-fixed. I had a great Christmas with Vanessa. And so I'm at home, March or April of 2004. Sheriffs come knocking on the door. They gave me a public defender. The public defender 
I saw one time, I spoke to him on the phone one time. They gave the other person six months worth of weekends. I can do that. I I fucked up. I'm gonna I'm gonna stand up. And then my lawyer calls me and said, um, they're offering you a one to three. And I was like, wait, my co-defendant got six months of weekends in county jail. And he was like, yeah, but this is a better deal. He said, after um, you get processed, um, your crime is so ridiculous. They're not gonna keep you in jail occupying a bed. And so you'll be on a work release because my full-time job is like, we'll help you whatever it takes. So you'll be out in three months on work release. So I was like, okay. I talked to my, my mom and I told her and she said, okay, she would watch Vanessa. I talked to my sister, she said, okay, I pled guilty. They took me into custody and I got bused all the way up to New York City to Bedford Hills. Locked up for several weeks and eight hours away from home, Anissa was startled when she was told she had visitors there to see her. You could tell like there were cops or military or something and they had on the same shirts and everything. And I was like, who the hell, what did I do now? So they're like, uh, hi, are you Anissa? They read off all of my names from birth to adoption to marriage, all of it. And I was like, yeah. And they're like, you don't know who we are, do you? And I'm like, I have no clue. And then the guy turned around and showed me the the initials on his the back of his shirt. And I was like, Ice? I still had no clue who these people were. And I was like, what are you, what's going on? And they're like, well, uh, you're not here legally in the country. And I'm like, what are you talking about? My mom and my dad are US citizens. My dad was in the army. Now, then I like, the light just came on and I was like, these guys think I'm here illegally. I was like, no, I was adopted. My sister and I were both adopted by a US family. My father was in the military, he's a sergeant, da, 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 da. And we were like, okay, you're adopted. Okay, so we'll look into it. You should be okay, but you'll hear back from us if we need anything else. And I'm, I'm just like, no, that's not gonna happen. I'm as American as apple pie. I am not going anywhere. I mean, this is that's that's not something that can happen. Um, my parents are U.S. citizens. I was legally adopted. I have a social security card. I have a student loan. Um, I had everything that driver's license. I mean, everything that a U.S. citizen had. I had, so I wasn't, I wasn't even sweating it. When Anissa told her parents what happened, they were just as confused. We never sat at breakfast and I never went, hey mom, am I, uh, <laughs> you know, it was just a unwritten, of course, of course, I am, I am the child of a U.S. citizen, I am adopted and, you know, I'm here and there was nothing that would lead me to believe that I wasn't a citizen. And even if there would have been, like, for example, I have a green card and I just thought that that was normal. More than a year in prison, Anissa was sitting in her cell, looking through her mail when she opened a letter from immigration. It was an order for deportation. 
I felt like somebody punched me in my stomach. I went straight to the phone to call my mom. And I said, I have an order of deportation and I'm supposed to appear in immigration court in New York City on this date. And she said, let me talk to your father and we have to talk to a lawyer to see what's happening. So I'm like, okay, my parents, they got this. Call me back next week and I'll have some, some news for you. I'm counting down the days next week. I get orders to pack up, to ship out, to go to New York City because I was going to immigration court. So I called my mom and I, she said, um, I don't know, had you not gotten in trouble, this wouldn't be an issue, but I can't talk to you because according to the lawyer that your father spoke to, we can get in trouble for child trafficking. And I was like, child trafficking? What's, what is happening? Why didn't you do my paperwork when you were supposed to? Why is this an issue? And yeah, I broke the law, but do you really think I deserve deportation? And that was when she hung the phone up and I never heard from her after that. To this day, Anissa is no longer in contact with the family who brought her to America and raised her. With no help from outside, Anissa was forced to use a 401k she had from work to hire an immigration lawyer. She would come with me to immigration court every time, assure me that I was not going to get deported. Uh, you're a handicapped single mother, blah, blah. You know, she would like, she would like pump me up so much. I'm like, yeah, I'm not going to get deported. That's true. I, I can't get deported. Anissa sent her teenage daughter, Vanessa, to Miami to stay with her biological sister. Her whole world was picked up, you know, and just turned upside down. I went to the court one day and I'm standing there and I'm just like, this is where the lawyer usually comes in. Where is she? And I'm I'm sitting there, handcuffed to this damn table. The ICE officers, they started to feel a little bad. And after they heard the story and everything, they were like, this is fucked up. And I was like, yeah. And uh, so I'm sitting there in this room and I am like hyperventilating because my lawyer isn't coming in. And then I hear them call me and I was like, where the fuck is my lawyer? And the judge rudely said to me that my lawyer had died. What am I going to do? Sign to be deported or get another lawyer? Where am I going to be deported? I left Jamaica when I was five-ish. Where am I going to be deported? I was in Panama in an orphanage. Am I going to show up at the orphanage? I mean, what is the what is the mentality behind this? Um, my uncles had sexually abused me in Panama, so I was like, if they send me back there and they find out I'm in Panama, are they going to do something to you know? I'm all of these things. I'm going to go hungry. What am I going to do with my kid? Anissa was going on two years in prison and now stuck in the infirmary at Hudson County Jail in New Jersey. I was locked in 23 hours a day, out one. Some days they wouldn't even let me out the shower. I would have to wash myself in the toilet slash sink combination in the cell. The ICE officer was like, you're gonna keep going through this and they're gonna deport you because it's the way the law is written. It would be best for you to sign and fight this from the outside because you're suffering this is a miserable situation for you to be in. You haven't seen your kid 
And all of this for three, less than $4,000. And he goes, you're going to spend that 401k. You're going to be deported anyways. Then once you're deported, what are you going to survive on if you spend that 401k? I was like, no, because I would rather die than be deported. Because I said, you don't understand. I get off a boat or a plane in any of these countries and I, I will not know what the hell to do. When Anissa got back from court, she called her sister to check on Vanessa. It was like all hell was breaking loose. Vanessa was lying. My sister was getting frustrated. I felt like, fuck it. Wherever they deport me, I just want my kid. After the phone call, Anissa notified the sergeant to contact ICE and say she wanted to be deported. A few days later, Anissa signed the paperwork and called her daughter the next week to tell her they would be together soon. When you're an American, you have like this mentality that you can do everything. It's okay. I'm going to be fine. Um, You have this also trusting instinct of people that you're not supposed to have outside of the U.S. Uh, It makes you a prey. So I thought, I'll find a job. I'll build from the ground up. I'm sure my family was going to help me. I'm sure I'll have help. It won't be so bad. Probably a few weeks later, I get woken up like at three in the morning. They wouldn't turn the lights on. They turned off the phone. They gave me a sweatshirt and some jeans to put on. There were flashlights everywhere. Rushing me to get ready. I got shackled and handcuffs. They put me in a van. They wouldn't tell me what was happening. Anissa was put in a van with a bunch of men who were also being deported. As the van circled the JFK airport, the men were talking about how long they were barred from returning to the U.S. They said, you can come back. You can come back. Don't worry about it. You can come back after five or ten years. Watch your bar. I'm looking at the paper frantically looking for a little bit of hope. And the ICE officer says, she has a lifetime bar. She's not coming back. And I just started... I just started hyperventilating. I couldn't believe that I would not be able to come back. And then they said, it's your time. You're going to be deported to a lifelong island vacation. So they took me and shackled up to the plane. The film Blue Bayou brings to light the trauma and hope behind so many stories like Anissa's. Because it's not where you're from, it's where you belong. Here's Anissa on the impact of Blue Bayou. I'm just grateful for the film. I'm just very happy for it because I think that this is a huge opportunity for um, not 
only people of our community, but people outside of our community that have adopted. The community is so divided. We're divided into, you know, Latino adoptions, Korean adoptees. We're so divided just to educate people and for people to, to do something. Of course, it's gonna be a shock to find out adoption isn't, you know, what, what we're sold. And I just hope that, you know, something will come of it and that something will happen. See the Focus Features film, Blue Bayou, written and directed by Justin Chan and starring Justin Chan and Alicia Vikander. Blue Bayou is now playing only in theaters. And now, back to Anissa's story. When Anissa arrived in Kingston, Jamaica, she was pulled aside by two officers. They had my handwritten birth certificate. They thought I was white. They didn't want to let me into the country. I had to explain my story to them so many times. And they acted like I was lying. And then it just kept getting worse. When I was let out of that room, I walked out to this long sidewalk. And there was like a line of taxis. <laughs> they were screaming at me, telling me what kind of sexual things they're going to be doing to me. I had never in my adult life felt so scared of being raped, killed, whatever. And these men were doing it, not like whispering it to me or they were like all screaming and whistling. And I was like, oh my gosh. It would be weeks before Anissa could draw more money out of her 401k to rent a room and have 14-year-old Vanessa come. I feel like I blocked out a lot of my early time in Jamaica because of that, because of, I guess, not really understanding what was going on, um, the culture shock of being in a completely different country than what I'm used to in upstate New York. It was a lot. It was very traumatizing because getting thrown into a country without any support, um, my mom's family that was in Jamaica really didn't want anything to do with us. It was just a lot going on. And it was, I, it was so enjoyable because I was back with my mom after three to two years of being away from her. And we were going to the beach because we had nothing else to do. And the times that I do remember that I haven't blocked out are just great times of us being at the beach together or eating Jamaican patties downtown, sitting on the wall. Just a lot of good memories, but looking back now, definitely a lot of trauma, in a sense. We were caught in a shootout between cops and gangs. We didn't even know what was going on. When I finally figured it out, I told my daughter to lay on the floor of the taxi. And I was flying through money because I was spending and nothing was coming in. Not even $5 from anybody saying, shit, Anissa's in Jamaica. Nothing. 
with nothing more than her handwritten birth certificate and unable to get proper documentation to survive in Jamaica, Anissa turned to her Panamanian roots. I'm like, we're going to go to Panama. So I used my last thousand dollars to go to the Panamanian embassy in Kingston. I told them my story. They looked me up. They found my uh, cedula, my ID number. They gave me a one-time travel document. So I basically gave away everything. Um, but, you know, what I could fit into the luggage that I was able to bring. And Vanessa and I, in December of 2006, left Jamaica to come to Panama. So we get to Panama and I'm just like, does this ever end? It's like huge culture shock. There was one positive thing that happened during Anissa's time in Jamaica that she wouldn't be leaving behind. When I was in Jamaica, I met this guy and he liked me. I asked him out on a date and uh, I was like, well, don't get serious because I'm not staying here. And he was like, where are you going? And I said, Panama. He said, I'll come with you. So I got here in December of 2006. He came in February of 2007. We got married because I was deathly afraid and I just needed help. Life in Panama was no easier. Anissa was only making $4 an hour as an interpreter in a call center while her husband tried to find what little work he could get. My daughter is 17 at this point and I can't afford to buy clothes. I had two pairs of jeans, two bras, five pairs of underwear of that. Vanessa had just clothes that were given to her by church members and her uniform, because I had to buy that for her to go to school. And a friend of ours approached us and said, have you thought about sending Vanessa back? I told them immediately no. But then, all throughout the day, I kept thinking about what future does she have? Am I being selfish just because I want her here for me? Am I thinking about what is she going to do when she gets done with school, work at a call center, make $500 a month? She won't be able to be educated in college here. And even with a college education here, if you don't have the right last name, you're not going to get into any kind of good job. So I was laying in bed and I said, I brought it up to my husband. And he said, I knew that was bothering you. So we talked about it and we pawned some stuff to get her a computer, a laptop. When she was almost 18, we sent her back to the US. She was more than happy to leave because being poor in the US is a lot different than being poor out here. Anissa sent Vanessa to live in Utah with church family and friends so she could finish school. It's funny because when I talk to other people about it, they're like, wait, you did what at 17? And for me, I just, I don't know. I feel like 
I rationalized it in my head. Like it was okay. Cause I was going through it at the time or something like that, but it was extremely difficult looking back on it. Now having been here for 11 years, I didn't realize how big of an impact it actually did have on me. So it, it definitely pushed me to be very independent. I'm already an only child and my mom's worked multiple jobs at once. So I was pretty independent as is, but this definitely kicked it into high gear and, um, yeah, just trying to survive on my own with what help my mom could provide from Panama. Um, it definitely was a growing experience to say the least. When she graduated, I told her you have three months to find a job or two. I can't afford to keep sending you this much money, but if you're going to study, I will make a sacrifice. So, after I told her that, three weeks later, I said, Mom, you don't have to send me any more money because I got another job. I can send you some money every once in a while. <laughs> she went back to school and we helped her again. So she got out of school. She got a good job. And every once in a while, she just sent me a picture of a Western Union slip. <laughs> She's amazing. She's really amazing. Vanessa has made a successful career for herself as an operations lead, managing e-commerce for major companies. There are times where I genuinely wonder, like, I don't know how my mom is making it through and is trying to be and is still able to be a sane, functioning person. Because if it were me, I probably definitely would have gone off the deep end and like completely just cut off all emotions, not really done anything. My mother is a very strong woman, especially seeing her go through life with having one leg with everything else on top of that, that she definitely has been a role model for me in the fact that she's still positive. She's still loving. She's still very giving, even though she doesn't have much to give. It's astounding to me. Because of the increasing cost and travel restrictions from COVID, Anissa hasn't seen Vanessa in three years. But a day doesn't go by without Anissa reminding Vanessa how much she loves and misses her. Every day, my mom... She's adorable. She'll message me every morning. Good morning. She calls me Nessie. Um, good morning, Nessie. I love you so much. I hope you have a great day. I miss you. And then just sends like a bunch of kissy emojis and heart emojis. And she's been doing that now. Oh, I want to say maybe almost like seven years solid. And it's to the point now where I don't get that message in the morning. I'm like, something happened. Mom, are you okay? Send me, just send me anything letting me know you're okay. So we talk very often. Today, Anissa works with Adoptee Advocacy, along with Christopher Larson, to help other adoptees and bring awareness to this crisis. Adoption is a feel-good story, right? Right now, if you adopt a child under, you know, 18 and you bring them into the country, you know, you have the savior mentality that, you know, we're saving them from, you know, a third world country. This is what adoption really is. 
It's not a fuzzy sitting around Christmas tree open fucking presents. That's not what adoption is. Check the percentage of how many adult adoptees are estranged from their family. That's the real story. Check how many people rehome their children into abuse, sexual abuse, physical abuse, and everything. That's the real story. Check on how many have to be rescued by the state to then find out later that they're no better off than they were before. That's the real story. Check how much more we are to commit suicide than a regular person. That's the real story. I am grateful for my adoption because if I wasn't, I would be regretting my daughter and I can't do that. I am grateful for the opportunities that it did open for me. But what good is that for me now? I don't have money to hire a lawyer, to overturn my criminal convictions, to overturn everything, to do this and to do that, and to fight for me, to find a loophole for me to come back to the States. I don't have that money. Joe Nugent in Morocco doesn't have that money. Mike Davies in Ethiopia doesn't have that money. My mom didn't come out seeking to come to the state. She was brought here as a part of the family. Um, she was promised a life of joy and love and happiness here in the States. The selfish part of me is like, at the end of the day, I just want my mom. I just want my mom home. Um, but when we look at the different scenarios of those that have been deported, a lot of them have not ended out as well as my moms have. There are those that have been deported and genuinely have had nothing. Everyone impacted by this deserves to be where they were promised to be. The adoption industry protects the adopted parents, but neglects to protect the adoptees from one day being deported because paperwork wasn't filed properly that would give them the same rights as any U.S. citizen. The Adoptee Rights Campaign estimates that the current number of children adopted from 1945 to 1998 who entered adulthood without U.S. citizenship ranges from 25,000 to 49,000. Those numbers will only increase unless legislation is passed to grant U.S. citizenship to all adoptees. Anissa and Chris are determined to accomplish this goal. If it was your child, what wouldn't you do to make sure your child came back? I know that there is no limits to what I would do to bring my child back home. There's no limits. And when I say no limits, I mean no limits. Whatever it takes. I don't think Chris is going to stop. And as long as he doesn't stop, I can't stop. Keeping Anissa going through all of this is the dream of reuniting with her daughter. I can't imagine a life where I can't just go out shopping with my daughter. Or helping her clean her apartment when she bolts. <laughs> going to have a haircut, just, just having a Thanksgiving meal with her. I just want a chance to make it up to her. 
the only thing that has kept me alive so far. I just have to believe that if I do good, one day good will come to me and if not to my kid. On the next episode of Unerased, the deportation of adoptees in America. Who gets to choose somebody's life and their fate to, to say, hey, you get to be a citizen just because you're a little bit younger. You get, you know, you're a little bit older, so you don't get to be a citizen. You get kicked out, you know? You go through all the process of being in jail and, you know, being dehumanized, you know, just because you were a little bit older. <laughs> like, that just, that's crazy to me. Unerased, the deportation of adoptees in America was created on behalf of Focus Features and co-produced by Focus Features and Treefort Media. I'm your host, Dino Ray Ramos. Executive producers are Kelly Gardner and Lisa Ammerman. Written and produced by Matthew Kugler. Tom Monahan is our senior audio engineer and sound supervisor, with production and editing by Maxwell Carney. Consulting producer, Tim Schauer. Additional production help from Haley Mandelberg and Justin Washington. With special thanks to Christopher Larson and Anissa Druzito from Adoptee Advocacy. If you've enjoyed what you've heard, please subscribe, rate us, and review us on Apple Podcasts to raise awareness about this crisis so more people can hear these unimaginable stories. Inspired by true events, the new film Blue Bayou shines an important light on the impact our immigration policies have on American families today. Watch Focus Features' new film, Blue Bayou, out now only in theaters. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader, like that car riding right your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on Auto Trader, too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro. Cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader.